Thank you, gentlemen. My name's Keith. I'm an alcoholic. And you guys are suckers for punishment. Um, I was, um, I remember early on, you know, when I, I really struggled with this whole concept of a spiritual awakening. How would I know that God had his hand in this thing? And then I uh, read a little bit of history, and I discovered that uh, Dr. Bob was a proctologist. That made perfect sense to me. <laughs> you, know, um, you know, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, you know, our job is to carry the message to the alcoholic who still suffers. And I was, um, when I lived in Wilmington, I was sponsoring a fellow who arranged the training uh, or the uh, orientation for the interns in our local hospital. And, uh, and so he would ask me to come, and I would speak for an hour on Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, what it was and, uh, you know, what we do and those things. And then I'd always say, if you ever have a patient that wants to talk to a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, just call either the intergroup or you're welcome to call me, and I'll be glad to come over and talk to them. And one day I got a call from this uh, young lady, and she said, I know you're a busy man. And uh, she went through that routine. She said, but I have a man over here who's totally non-communicative. He doesn't communicate. She said, the only response we've ever gotten from him was I said to him, would you like to speak to a member of Alcoholics Anonymous? And he nodded his head. And I said, I'll be right over. And so I, I went over to the hospital, and I met her at the nurse's station. And she was a y- young lady, an intern, you know. And, uh, and, um, and she said to me, would you like to see his chart? I said, no, no, I know what's in the chart. And, um, <laughs> and so she took me down to his room, and I walk in, and there's this gentleman who's about my age. And uh, he's lying in bed looking at the ceiling. He's a black man, and... Uh, and just like with his hands behind his head, just staring at the ceiling. And she started this routine about Mr. Lewis is a very busy man, and he's kind enough to give up some of his time to come and talk. You know, so I cut her off, you know. And she was getting ready to join us. And, um, and so I said to her, would you please excuse us? She kind of looked, you know, and she left. But she left the door slightly ajar, and she was lurking outside, you know. <laughs> Now, I'm married to an Al-Anon, so I know all about lurking. Uh, if, I, if I'm ill or something and I go to the guest room, uh, Julia lurks outside. She's listening to my breathing, to everything. I mean, you know, she's calculating everything. And so I know all about lurkers. And uh, so she's lurking around outside. And, and all I did was what we do. I sat down next to the man, and I began to tell him my story. And I said, yeah, I was living on the skids uh, on Harvard Street. And he looked at me and he said, when? I said, 1973. He said, we were neighbors. (laughs) And uh, he said, I lived on Columbia Road. I said, wow. I said, we really were neighbors. I said, did you ever uh, buy your booze at Ontario Liquor Store? He said, I bought them at every every liquor store. (laughs) And I said, remember that barrel they had, three-fifths for $10? He said, yeah, those were the good old days. And... uh, (laughs) And they were, and I told him, you know, when I'd go up there, I used to, you know, I'd put on uh, an ascot, and I had a corduroy sport coat with patches, you know, the kind, so I'd look like an intellectual. And, um, and I, was at the, I was at the Ontario liquor store one day, and I'm going through that barrel, 
and I was looking, you know, holding him up, look, three-fifths for $10. And, uh, and uh, so I said to this gentleman behind the counter, I said, pardon me, sir, is this a pretty good vodka? And he said, he said, what do you care? It'll get you where you need to go. And so, I, I was highly offended, so I bought six bottles and left. And, uh, and this man could relate to that. We're talking, and pretty soon, uh, you know how we talk to one another. We talk from the heart because we talk out of experience. And we know the depths of one another's pain. And he's sitting on the side of the bed, and we're talking. And we're just having the nicest time, and he's telling me his story, and I'm listening, and I'm telling him my story, and he's listening. It's going back and forth, and... Uh, and, and I said to him, I said, I know you're probably tired. I said, how would it be if I come back tomorrow and bring a couple of my friends? He said, if they're like you, I'd love to meet them. And, uh, and so uh, I got up to leave, and uh, I go out, and at the nurse's station, there were like four of the interns are hanging around there. And they all wear their stethoscopes around their necks so you'll know they're doctors and not high school students. And uh, <laughs> they look so, you know, and... Uh, and, and, and this woman said, that's the most magnificent thing I've ever seen in my life. She's out there lurking. And, um, and she said, do you ever do workshops? And I said, well, I do. She said, would you do a workshop for us? I said, well, are you willing to do some homework? And she said, yeah, yeah, of course. I said, well, you have to drink real bad for at least 10 years. <laughs> And I was able to say to her, I was able to say to her, I said, look, what we do, we do because we've been given the gift of sobriety. I said, it's a gift. I said, for thousands of years, no one knew it was a gift. And and since they were physicians, I told them, I said, you know, this was first described as a disease by a man named Seneca, who was a physician and also a Roman senator. And I said, his dates were 4 BC to 56 AD. So about the time my higher powers walking the earth, he described this as a disease. I said, but it took almost 2,000 years for this to come together. And I said, and we've been given this marvelous gift. And I said, um, I said, uh, we speak to one another from the heart. And I said, wherever you go to practice medicine, meet a couple members of Alcoholics Anonymous and ask them to help you. I said, your job is to save our lives. Uh, medically, I said, our job is to save one another's lives by sharing our experience, strength, hope, and the incredible gift that we've been given. And she said, I'll do that. And it was interesting because she relocated in Maryland. And she called me up and told me that she had called the intergroup office and a man and a woman had come over to talk to her and they said they'd be glad to talk to any of her patients. So, you know, this gift that we have is something beyond our wildest dreams. Uh, I think about this, this spiritual journey. And, you know, tonight we're going to talk a little bit about what happens after the spiritual awakening. You know, it is such a journey. I, I love to look at the picture of Father Ed Dowling. And, uh, you know, he's a Jesuit priest from St. Louis. And, you know, Father Ed read the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. And he was so taken with it. Now, Father Ed was a writer and an editor but he was also an expert in the spiritual exercises of Ignatius Loyola. And uh, Ignatius Loyola was the founder of the Jesuit order. 
and, uh, and the spiritual exercises are a long 30-day phenomenon. There will be days of total silence and fasting and just a whole variety of things. And he was a real expert in this. And he read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. He was so taken by it. He got on a plane. Here's a man, or I mean a train. Here's a man with arthritis of the spine riding a train from Missouri to New York City to meet this man, Bill. And Bill is sober about five years, and he's in his depression. And, uh, you know, Dick talked about it. And uh, Bill's in his depression. And a guy who's, and he's sleeping above the clubhouse. He and Lois are keeping their clothes in orange crates. He's watching these people get sober and get successful. And he's living above the clubhouse with his clothes in orange crates, and his wife's working in the, in the uh, uh, department store again. And uh, the uh, guy cleaning up the clubhouse says, there's a drunk down here to talk to you, and Bill didn't want to talk to any more drunks. And Father Ed comes clumping up the steps. He used a walking stick because of his arthritis. And he walked in, and uh, Bill's laying in bed depressed. And he said to him, uh, did uh, you write this? And Bill said, yes. And he said, have you done these 12 things? He said, I wrote those 12 things. It's probably the most energy Bill had all day. And, uh, and then he said to him, and I, and I think this wrote to 12 and 12. I really believe this. Um, Bill said, uh, I don't have a sponsor. And Ed said, I'll be your sponsor. And then he said to him, he asked the question, because it's so easy to believe if we're in pain, emotional pain it's, or spiritual pain, it's so easy to believe that we've failed. You know, and Bill thought was, if you're successful, you're not in pain. If you're in pain, you failed. And he said it to, uh, to Father Ed. He said, will it always hurt like this? And Ed said to him, who was a Thomist, okay, he was a great follower of Thomas Aquinas. He said to him, yes, Bill, don't you see? That's the beauty of it. <laughs> and we read in the 12 and 12 that pain is the touchstone of all spiritual growth. And I was telling a friend of mine today, a new friend I've met, that, uh, you know, uh, when I was newly sober, I met a man named Bob Moore. May, many of you may have heard of Bob Moore. Bob was a Native American, and, um, and he traveled a lot, and he started a lot of AA groups on various reservations across the country. And he was in the Washington, D.C. area at the Bureau of Indian Affairs doing something. And he came to the Del Rey Club out in Bethesda, Maryland, and he walked in, and my buddy Mike and I were sitting there. And he, he had missed the meeting, and he said, would you gentlemen spend some time with me? Could we have a meeting? And I said, of course. And so we got coffee, and we sat down, and we talked. And uh, he was a very astute and observant man, and I was very anxious all the time. You know, I was, you know, I was on a hair trigger. And uh, he said to me, he said, son, he said, you're the kind of guy who would push in, who would jump in a river and try to push the river so it'll go faster. He said, the river's going to run at its own pace. He said, you have to learn to accept that. And then he told me about, he said, one of the Native American customs they have is the sweat lodge. And he said, when I go into the sweat lodge, he said, I rid myself of everything that's of the earth and the world. And he said, when I walk out of there, I'm right in the middle of God's path. He said, that's the way it is in Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, when you walk out of a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, you can be right in the middle of your path. He said, but if you stay away, you begin to drift. And he said, eventually, you'll drift so far you won't know there is a path. And he said, that's why it's important for you, son, to stay very actively involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. 
He was an absolute, he's been gone now for some time. He's an absolutely wonderful man, a humble, beautiful man. There was another man who many of you know, John V., John Vicari, John the Indian. And he was that kind of guy. And I had the great privilege of spending two weeks with him down in, um, in uh, New Orleans. Uh, we did a seminar at Loyola University prior, to, and then following that, they had the, um, the International in 1980. It was a fascinating time because we stayed in a dormitory, and on one side of me was John the Indian, and on the other side was John Powell, the great psychologist and written all the books, Why Am I Afraid to Tell You Who I Am? Why Am I Afraid to Love? He's not a member of the fellowship, but he loves Alcoholics Anonymous. He absolutely loves it. And, um, and so we went to dinner a lot, and John the Indian couldn't read. And... Uh, and so, you know how you sit down and you pick up the menu, and I'd say, what looks good? And I'd look over, and John would just be looking at me. I'd say, I'm sorry, John, so I'd read him the menu, right? Well, one night we went to Bouchard's, and I walked in, and I saw my old buddy Conway H. from Atlanta. and was sitting there, and I went over and shook Conway's hand, and we talked for a couple minutes. And John the Indian and John Powell went over. To, the maitre d' took them over to the table, and they sat down. And they always asked you, do you want your menu in English or French? And John said, French. (laughs) I walk over and sit down and pick up the menu and look at it. And I hear, what looks good? Ha, 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 ha. (laughs) I couldn't admit I couldn't read French, so I ordered uh, free parking in the rear. Um, But these were deep spiritual men who had marvelous senses of humor. All of them had just great sense of humor. And, you know, the result of a spiritual awakening is that we take life much more lightly. We take one another much more seriously. We take this program seriously, but we treat life lightly. Because, you know, I'm in a place I should never be. Um... And uh, I keep trying to learn how to deal with these things. And, you know, I was, um, uh, I've run across a a, a writer. He was a French archbishop in the 17th century. His name's Fenelon. And Fenelon talks also about being on a path. And he said, we walk down the path that God has for us. And he said, in the middle of the path, from time to time, there'll be a cross, And he said, if you go around, we call them problems or issues, okay? (laughs) Anybody have any issues? They mean crosses. Um, He said, if you go around the cross, you step out of God's path. He said, if you try to push the cross out of the path, you push yourself out of the path. He said, what you're supposed to do is pick up the cross and carry it. And he said, then one day it will disappear, and you'll be spiritually stronger than you were when you picked it. And that's the great lesson of the spiritual awakening of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, that story that I related to you about uh, Father Ed Dowling is in the book called The Soul of Sponsorship. And Ed and Bill corresponded quite a bit as Bill was writing The Twelve and Twelve. And as Dick said, he didn't write it alone. He never wrote anything alone. There's a lady, uh, Liz S., who lives in Wilmington, North Carolina, who's got 50, coming up on 59 years of sobriety now. And uh, she uh, helped Bill. She worked with Bill in New York. And uh, she was involved in the writing of the 12 and 12. 
And uh, she's well into her 90s now. And still on Monday night, Lib has her girls over to her house. She fixes them dinner. And they spend two or three hours working through the book. We lost another wonderful member last year, a man named Cersei from Texas. And Cersei was the, uh, uh, he, he sponsored Ebby Thatcher for a short period of time when he was in Texas. And I had the great privilege of spending uh, some time with Cersei. When he was in the hospital, um, I got to talk to him on the phone. And uh, he and my then sponsor, Tom, and I were very close friends. And so I got to talk to Cersei on the phone. And he said to me, uh, I said, how are you doing? He said, I'm doing fine. He said, I've just taken a commitment next year. He was 94 years old. And he took a commitment. That's the result of the spiritual awakening that happens. You know, what we do here is we accept the phenomenal gifts that God presents us with. And sometimes the gifts are crosses. You know, sometimes the gifts are horrible losses. Sometimes the gifts are watching a new man or woman get well. You know, sometimes you win a lottery. It hadn't happened to me yet, but it's going to one of these days, you know. But, uh, but you know, we never know the form that the gifts come in. Uh, Chuck Chamberlain used to talk about the new pair of glasses. And I, I didn't get to know him very well, but I did meet him one time. And, uh, and, but I got to know Elsie, his, uh, his wife, well. And uh, we spoke together numerous times, and, and I visited her home and everything. And, uh, and she spent a lot of time talking to me, and I was talking to her about his new pair of glasses. And she said to me, she said, Chuck always believed that the world remained the same. But if you get a new pair of glasses, the world looks different. You know, and that's absolutely true. I was a guy who was so suspicious, so cynical, so belligerent, so defiant. And the program of Alcoholics Anonymous gave me a new pair of glasses. And I was able to see beauty in things where for me, prior to that, beauty never existed. I'd like to talk about one more thing, if I might, and that's sponsorship. And Dick touched on it. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about it tomorrow. But, uh, but I, 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 sponsorship is part of the spiritual discipline of living a spiritual life. And the part is coming under the authority of another human being, under the guidance, the direction, and the authority of another human being. And, um, and you know, when I was new, I was hesitant about getting a sponsor because I might make a mistake. I mean, I was getting divorced pretty soon, you know. And, uh, and a guy pointed out to me, he said, you know, you don't need a lawyer to get rid of a sponsor. He said, uh, you know, you can change sponsors. And uh, so I made up my mind I was going to get a sponsor. And then the day before... I made up my mind. Another man said to me, kid, you got a sponsor yet? I said, no. I said, I'm looking for someone I can relate to. Back in the 70s, it was real important to relate. And he said, well, go to a bar, kid. He said, there are a lot of people there you can relate to. And, uh, and then he gave me a clue. He said, he said, get a sponsor. He said, find someone you want to be like if and when you grow up. And, you know, I've been looking at some men. I've been watching some men. And there was a man named Art P. 
and a man named Don C., or Dan C. And I watched both of them. And I remember one time seeing at an intersection and hearing all this noise, and I looked next to me, and Art's car was filled with people. It was always filled with people. I don't think it would start unless there were four or five people in it. And he said, uh, and I looked over, and I'm thinking, what a sad thing. He's got to surround himself with people all the time. He can't get along on his own. What a sad thing. I was so sick, you know. And uh, no, I also noticed they're laughing and having a good time. And so that night I'm at the meeting, and I said to, uh, to Art, I said, how do you get people to ride with you in a car? And he said, you need to ride somebody? Drive somebody? I said, yeah. And he said, come with me. And there was an old lady there, and he went over, and he introduced me. And he said to her, uh, on Wednesdays, and Fridays, Keith will be picking you up to take you to this meeting and to that meeting, right? So I was there. I was always there like 10 minutes early, and she'd come waddling, waddling out of her apartment building, and she'd always pinch me on the cheek and bring me a cookie or something. And, uh, and uh, so I'm taking this old lady to meetings. And uh, about a month later, maybe two months later, Art came up and said, we really appreciate what you've been doing with the old lady. He said, but uh, we got somebody else who who needs to do that now, so we're going to have him pick her up. I said, that's my old lady. (laughs) He said, no, 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 Keith. He said, we rotate in Alcoholics Anonymous. We rotate duties in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, I I couldn't decide between Art or Dan for sponsorship. And uh, I admired both of them. And they both had what I wanted. They were active. They were well-liked. All that stuff. And those are all the things I wanted. So I was, uh, I made up my mind I'd do it scientifically. I know they both went to this particular meeting. So I arrived about 45 minutes early and I turned my chair around. I'm facing the door. And the first one to walk in was the one I was going to ask. Well, they come to the door together, of course, you know. <laughs> but somebody stopped Art and Dan walked in. So I went over and asked Dan if he'd sponsor me. And uh, he said he would. And he was an absolutely marvelous sponsor. But I figured out sponsorship early on. You know, sponsors are people who find out what you really want to do and tell you you can't do it. And, um, and, uh, and I'm sober about three months, and I get this letter from uh, Paris. And it was written by a man named Jerome Lejeune, who was probably the world's greatest cytologist. And uh, he invited me. He, 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 he uh, taught at the University of Paris Medical School, and he was the director of the genetics units at the uh, Hospital for Sick Children in Montparnasse. And he invited me over to study chromosomal banding techniques with him. And I knew I wouldn't be allowed to go. I knew it. And, uh, and I didn't want to give Dan the satisfaction of telling me I couldn't go. So, uh, but we went to lunch, and I figured, what have I got to lose? So I showed him the letter, and he beamed. He just beamed. And he said, this is magnificent. I said, it is? He said, of course it is. And he said, this isn't about you, Keith. This is about Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, left of your own devices, you'd be dying over there on Skid Row. He said, now you're going to go to France and you're going to study. And I said, I didn't think you'd let me go. And he said, look at me. He was like my mother. He really meant it. (laughs) He said, look at me. He said, never forget this. He said, you can do anything in Alcoholics Anonymous if you prepare properly. And he said, we have four months to help you prepare to go to France. We spent those four months doing step work. I got an AA contact in the uh, 
uh, the American Embassy in Paris. I found out that the uh, the meetings were at the the American Church in Paris on the Seine River, a wonderful Episcopal church there. And, and I got all the information I needed. And you know, New Year's Eve, 1973, I'm glad I was sitting in the corner of the airplane because this airplane settled into Orly Airport and I was in tears. Seven months before that, I was dying in the basement of a house in the Skid Row section of Washington, D.C. Now I'm about to walk the streets of Paris, a free man. And uh, the strangest thing, while I was there, my sponsor happened to come through town. What a coincidence, you know? And he, he spent a week with me. And it was absolutely magnificent. And, and, uh, and I constantly learned. And um, in... And one of the things I learned was that I could tell him things that I had never told anybody. I was a guy, one of my great fears, I had a terrible fear of heights. That's why I only grew to be about 5'5". Five five. But, um, <laughs> but I had a terrible fear of heights. I really did. And, and as a matter of fact, and what I thought you did with fear was you got brave, right? So I've got this fear of heights. So I'm in the Marine Corps, and I decide I'm going to try to go to jump school. Well, they, I couldn't get to jump school, so I did the next best thing. I went to mountain climbing school. Here I am, out in Bridgeport, California, rappelling off the sides of mountains in the Sierra Nevadas, right, in snowstorms. And a guy I'm climbing would say, you've been drinking. I said, of course I've been drinking. He said, I'm not climbing with somebody who's been drinking. I said, you're better off with me drinking than not drinking. And, um, <laughs> and I came back from California more afraid of heights than I was before I went out there. I thought the way you dealt with fear was by getting brave. So Dan and I take a train down to Chartres, you know, the beautiful little French village where the fantastic cathedral is. It was a cathedral. The two towers are entirely different. I think they built it during Martini time or something. But, uh, and all the engineers, Dan knew all this history, and he said, you know, all the engineers say this can't be standing. He said, but they're the same people who say bumblebees can't fly. And he said, this cathedral has been here for a thousand years. And so we get off the train. We're walking across this spectacular little uh, village. And I see this magnificent church with the two towers entirely different from one another. And Dan said to me, he said, you know what's amazing about this? He said, there's a catwalk. A lot of people don't know this. He said, but there's a catwalk that goes around the top of the church. We can go up there and look down and see the whole church at one time. And my heart jumped up to my throat, and I began to get brave. But I'd been a sober member of Alcoholics now almost eight months, Alcoholics Anonymous, almost eight months, and I stopped. And I said, you know, Dan, I said, I have a terrible fear of heights. He said, oh, the old fear of heights problem. He said, a lot of us have had that. And um, <laughs> whatever problem I had, he assures me a lot of us have had it, you know. And then he told me, he told me something. He said, we don't need to go up there. He said to the cathedral is beautiful from the floor. He said, or, this is a unique approach for an alcoholic. He said, we can go part way. Then he told me about the AA way. He said, we can go until you get anxious. Then you can take my hand and we'll go together. And I got about halfway up those steps. And I said, Dan, I'm getting a little nervous. And he took my hand and we went up there together. And that's the way it is in Alcoholics Anonymous. We take a hand, and we go places we never could have gone before. 
And you know, from time to time, that fear still comes back. Julie and I were driving from Wilmington down to Edisto Beach for, to speak in the conference and uh, that little retreat they have down there. It's a wonderful little thing on Edisto Island or Edisto Beach. And, uh, you know, we going over that bridge in Charleston, you know, that rickety old wooden thing, you know. And so I'm about, I'm, I'm, a, I'm up there and it hit me all of a sudden. It comes every once in a while. And what happens is the picture gets smaller and smaller, you know. And, uh, and so I slow down to about 10 miles an hour. I get right in the middle. The people behind me must have known. And they were kind. Nobody honked her horn. Nobody did anything, right? And Julia said, are you all right, sweetheart? I said, it's back. I said, my fear of heights. I said, she said, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'm going to keep breathing and keep driving. <laughs> and, uh, and so she began to pray. And uh, she prayed me across the bridge. And uh, coming back, we went around. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, and I have since driven over the bridge, and it hasn't happened to me. But, you know, there was a time when I couldn't have told a woman I was married to that I had fears. You know, when I bought my beach house, uh, and I brought my children down, and uh, so they went back and told their mother, Daddy bought a beach house. And their mother said, that doesn't make sense. He hates the ocean. What had happened, we lived in Washington, D.C., and um, she wanted to go to the beach. Now, to go to the beach from Washington, D.C., you have to go across something called the Bay Bridge, which is 500 miles long and 200 miles high. And, um, and they make you stop in the middle. And, uh, and I'm just absolutely terrified. I'm sweating bullets. But I can't tell the woman I'm married to because she wouldn't want to be married to a guy who was afraid. And so I get over there. I spend a whole week trying to figure out how I'm going to talk her into going through Baltimore instead of coming back. Well, we couldn't do it. So what I did was I got sick. I said, oh, my stomach hurts. I think I better lay down in the back seat. And she drove back. I couldn't tell the woman I was married to that I was afraid of heights because I had not had a spiritual awakening. I had had a spiritual collapse. I was so filled with terror. I was so filled with fear that there was absolutely no way that I could be who I am in the presence of another human being. And what Alcoholics Anonymous has taught me is I suit up, I show up, and I'm who I am. And if it's not adequate, God isn't finished with me yet. And I'm just starting on this journey. You know, I've been a member for almost 32 years. But I'm new in this journey. I am. And I renew it and renew it and renew it and renew it. And I'm going through some things now. Very difficult times in certain areas of my life. And I talk to my friends about it. I talk to my wife about it. I talk to my pastor about it. I talk to my sponsor about it. I pray about it. And I try to pick up the cross that's in the middle of my path and carry it till it disappears. Because I know I'll be spiritually stronger for having done it than I was before. And I've learned that from you. I've watched how you deal with life. I watched how my friend, Mike Way, died. I watched that. And I watched the incredible strength and the faith that he displayed throughout the entire process. And uh, uh, I carry his 31-year chip in my pocket. And uh, last year I carried his 30-year chip in my pocket. 
And um, I carry the rosary I gave him 30 years ago, and on his deathbed he gave it back to me. And I said to him, I'm going to lose my prayer partner, and he assured me I'll never lose him. He said, I'll always be your prayer partner. And you know it's true because that man formed my life in so many ways that he's always with me, always with me. I wanted to talk about one other spiritual lesson that I learned, if I may. And then when we're finished, um, if anybody has any questions, perhaps you'd like to come up and ask them or if you want to make any statements about your own spiritual awakening, I'd love to hear it. You know, one of the amends that I never got to make and I wanted desperately to make was my dear brother, Terry. Terry was one of the most wonderful men I ever knew, a very, very, very sick alcoholic. He'd been a boxer, a good boxer. Uh, He was a mathematical genius. He really was. He was an absolute wizard. He could do anything. Whatever he made up his mind he was going to do, he somehow got it done. He was a master cigar roller. I mean, he could do anything. I mean, he just would, you know, take off on something and do it, and do it beautifully. And, uh, and Terry was on my A-step list, and I never got to see him. I guess it must be hard when your brother comes home who's sober. When I was new in AA, um, my mother called me up and uh, said, your brother Terry's drunk. And I said, uh, put him on the phone. So I put him on the phone, and I preached at him, and I'm sober about six months or something like that. And I said, you stay there. I'm going to come home and talk to you. So I drive 300 miles to go home to talk to my brother, and he's not there. And I said, Mom, where is he? She said, he's probably down the bar. So I went down to the bar on the river by the blast furnace, and I went in, and sure enough, he's sitting at the bar. So I sit down next to him, and I preach to him for about 40 minutes, right? I don't know anything about what I'm doing. Right, And he was, like I say, a boxer. And he hit me with a short jab that put me flat on my back. you know. And I was crushed. And I got up and I went out and I found a phone and I called my sponsor. And Dan said, you're where? You did what? Get back here. And uh, he said, come directly to my house. So I get in a car and I drive 300 miles back. And it's 3 o'clock in the morning. I go to his apartment. I ring the doorbell. He brings me in, I see the sofa's made up, <laughs> ready for me, and, uh, and he had a long talk with me, and he said, you never do things like that that you don't talk to your sponsor first, and uh, I said, but, but it's my job to help my brothers and my family, he said, no, 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 he said, it's your job to get and stay sober, it's your job to be a living example of what can happen to a person who goes to Alcoholics Anonymous, and then he had me do something. He said, that was a Wednesday night, and he said, tomorrow night, I want you to go to Foxhall. I said, yeah, yeah, they have the step meeting. He said, no, no. He said, I want you to go upstairs. He said, they have an Al-Anon meeting up there, and he said, here's the name of two women who are going to meet you. And he said, now, don't introduce yourself as an alcoholic. You're up to here with alcoholics. He said, and don't say anything. Just sit and listen. And he said, I want you to go once a week for at least a year till you learn how to handle the alcoholics in your life. And I probably went once a week for 20 years. I never joined because I figure if I can do one program well, I'm doing well. Okay? But I learned so very, very much. Years later, Terry's on my eight-step list because I had been awfully rude to him as a kid and everything. It was just awful. And, um, and I was pining 
just to love my brother Terry. And um, anytime I'd go home, he'd disappear. Like I say, it must be hard to have a sober brother come home when you're drunk and you're living in a basement of a house like I did and that sort of thing. And Terry was the kind of guy, he was a much nicer man than me. He would collect, he would collect aluminum cans, and then he'd give some of the money to somebody who needed it. And uh, that's the kind of guy he was. He was just a prince of a man. And uh, Julia and I were married. She'd never met Terry. And uh, she'd met all my other brothers and sisters, and they loved her. And, and so we went up for my parents' 50th wedding anniversary, and I knew Terry would have to be there. I knew I'd get a chance to talk to him. And I'll never forget, uh, we went over to my sister Patty's house, and Terry was coming out of the house. And Julia ran up to him and said, you're Terry, aren't you? And he said, yes, ma'am. And she said, I'm Keith's wife, Julia. And she hugged him. She loved him immediately, a real Al-Anon. You know, he's a real alcoholic. And, um, and then I went up to him, and I said, how you doing, Terry? And he wouldn't look me in the eye. He was like me. When I came to AA, I was a shoe guy. I wasn't an eye guy. And... Um, <laughs> And, uh, and he wouldn't give me any of his time. And uh, I was crushed. And the next day, we had a big party. And, you know, like I say, my parents not only raised us, they raised a lot of other kids. So this 50th wedding anniversary was a celebration beyond our wildest dreams. Uh, the grandchildren came, great-grandchildren came. These kids they helped raise came. Some of them actually came back from Europe to be with them. And there were probably 160 people in this thing. And everybody's there but Terry. And finally, about 9.30, my brother Henry comes to me and said, Terry's here and he's drunk. I said, of course he's drunk. I said, he's alcoholic. He said, he shouldn't be here like that. And I said, no one should be anywhere like that. I said, but he must love mom and dad an awful lot to be here like that. And Henry looked at me and he said, wow, that's true. I said, I know where he's been. He said, where's he been? I said, he's been down the street trying to drink up enough nerve to come here. And um, so my, my family, my, Henry went and told all my brothers and sisters what I had said, and they just took him in and loved him. My favorite picture in the whole world, maybe next to the one with me and a guy I sponsor, Neilan, next to Dr. Bob's grave tombstone. But probably my favorite picture in the whole world is a picture of my brother Terry with his head half closed on my father's shoulder that night. His eyes half closed and his head on his shoulder. And, um, and you know, um, I got to make amends to Terry the best way I could. And some months later, my mother called me up and said, Terry's in the hospital. He's got lung cancer. We don't know how long he has. And I canceled, you know, I pulled out of my job and stuff, and I just took off. And I drove up to Ohio, and I went over, and I got to spend some time with his precious kid, Terry. And I went in, and he would have been a really tough, strong, muscular guy, you know. And uh, now he's wasted away. He must weigh less than 100 pounds. He's very frail-looking and everything. And, and I went in, and I sat down next to him. And he asked the kind of question, I guess, you might want to ask if you're an alcoholic and you know you don't have long to live. He said, Keith, do you really believe there's a God? And I said, Terry, I believe there's a God more than I believe anything in the whole world. And then he sort of hemmed and hawed for a little bit and looked around, and then he looked at me and he said, do you think he could care about a guy like me? And I said, you know, Terry, the God I serve couldn't help but love you. 
And uh, so then he asked me a lot of questions about the things we grew up with, with rosaries and scacklers and things like that. And I just happened to have a couple extras with me. And, uh, and I reminded him how to pray them and all that stuff. And, um, and uh, then I asked him for a favor, something I'd wanted to do for years and years and years. I said to him, Terry, could I hug you? And he kind of looked shocked. And he said, of course. And he slid out of bed. He was real shaky. And I went over and I put my arms around him and we hugged. You know, and he couldn't hug for long. You know how hard it is to be close to someone when we're alcoholic. And uh, he, he couldn't hug for long. We only hugged for a few seconds maybe. And I thanked him profusely. And then when I was leaving, he said to me, uh, Keith, and I said, yes, Terry. He said, you know, I think I can be like you. I don't think I have to drink anymore. And I said, you know, Terry, I know you can do that. And I'll be praying for you every day. And, you know, he never did drink again. And um, I was driving back to North Carolina. Of course, I was very sad and teary. And uh, and I hearkened back to the days that I uh, um, studied theology. And, you know, in... There are theologians who believe there are two kinds of time. There's something called chronos, chronological time, which is linear. Okay? And then there's something called kairos, which is God's time, which is always now. That's why the old-timers always said to us, you can't know God in the past. You can't know God in the future. You can only know God right now. Because right now is God's time. And, you know, I only hugged my dear brother Terry for a few seconds chronologically. But I, I, I gathered that I hugged him forever in God's time. And he lives in my heart to this. You know, he spent six months with my parents. And, um, and um, during that six months, he did everything he could to make amends for the damage he had done. He bought little gifts for people and things like that. And, you know, the day after my 20th AA birthday, they walked into my brother Terry's bedroom, and they found him dead in his rocking chair. He'd been praying the rosaries I gave him. And my brother Terry died the way I want to die. He was in a clean place. He was sober. He was surrounded by people who loved him. He had made the best amends he could make to the people he had done damage to. And he was talking to the God of his understanding. That's the way I want to go. That's the way I want to go. And you know, um, Terry's taught me a lot about life. He's taught me a lot about courage. He's taught me a lot about the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. But most of all, Terry's taught me a lot about God. I'm not supposed to have experiences like this. I'm supposed to be drunk someplace. You know, the magnificence of this program? The book says we go through people's lives like a tornado, and that's absolutely true. But you know something else? If we work these steps... We can go through people's lives like a healing wind. The environment in which we live can be a better place, 
than it was before we lived there. Not because of us, but because of the loving God of the second tradition who teaches us how to forgive and how to serve. If we can forgive and we can serve, there's absolutely nothing in this world that will look out of line to us. We'll put on those new pair of glasses that uh, it, it, uh, Chuck talks about. And we'll see the life through the eyes of our higher power. We get to watch people change. As a result of the environment that we help to create. Not by doing, but by being who he would have us be. And of course we do, we take action. You know, sobriety is about action. Change is about action. And like I said yesterday, Emerson said to grow is to change. To have changed often is to have grown much. And that's the great promise of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we get to carry the message to alcoholics who still suffer. And we try to live our life based upon the principles that we've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous. Principles like kindness, principles like generosity, principles like politeness, principles like caring. We get to live our life based on principles that to us at one time were probably a waste of time. And more importantly, they were things that weak people do. Now I know the strongest people I've ever known in my life are the spiritual giants, most of whom I've met in Alcoholics Anonymous. There are other giants, and I used to laugh at them. I have a profound respect for the Holy Father who just died. And my dear friend Dick knew that, and he called me and told me he was sorry. I bet you a dozen people called me to tell me they were sorry because they knew I would miss him. And uh, those are the kind of people that populate my life today. They're not the kind of people that I hung out with in a bar. You know, the people in a bar were every bit as cynical as I was. You know, I worked in a teaching hospital, and uh, they used to list the autopsies they were going to have that week. And uh, they would give the age and the cause of death. And from time to time, I'd see, you know, John Doe, 44 years old, chronic acute alcoholism. And so I'm thinking, I'm going to scrub into this post and watch this because I was going to scare myself out of drinking as much. I was going to, it's going to make me slow down, right? So I'd go in there and I'd see that liver and the brain with all the hemorrhaging and all the stuff that's going on. And I'd stand as long as I could and I'd run out of there. And I'd go to Chadwick's and I'd run in and Vinny, the bartender, would say, what do you want? I said, uh, better give me a double. He said, you always get a double. I said, well, make it a triple. And, uh, and I would explain to those guys what I had just seen. And we'd all sit around and say, how can someone do that to themselves? You know? And, you know, my descriptions were so vivid, the other guys would order a triple. And, um, and we assessed the problem. The problem was they didn't think much of themselves. They didn't respect themselves. They didn't love themselves. That's what the problem was, you know? And here I am, just 
so many years later with an entirely different view of life. How very wrong I had been for how very, very long. And, you know, from time to time, I still I have a little card I had typed up. From time to time, I either stick it on my computer monitor, I stick it on the mirror in the bathroom. Keith, you're wrong. Because the more things I can be wrong about, the happier my life is going to be. You know, being right doesn't count for much. You know, I remember uh, a man told me a story one time. and I wrote it, sent it off to Dick. Um, he was at a coffee shop. And uh, he bumped into an old guy who had just recently lost his wife. And he, this, this is a guy I know and I sponsored. And he just had a big argument with his wife. And uh, and so he bumps into this guy at the coffee shop in Wilmington. And, uh, and so the old man got a cup of coffee and sat down with him. And he said, how's it going? And he said, uh, oh, I just had a big argument with my wife. And, uh, and uh, he said, you know, we had an she's wrong. And this old man said to him, well, tell me, son, who's keeping score? He said, what do you mean? He said, well, who's keeping score? And then he talked about his wife. And he said to him, he said, you know, he said, I had a home like everybody else's home in my neighborhood. He said, I had two children like everybody else. And he said, it wasn't until I lost her that I realized how very, very much I loved her. And he said, I look back at my life and I ask myself, who kept score? Who was right the most? And the answer is no one keeps score. And my friend told me he didn't even finish his coffee. He jumped up. He ran out, got in his car. He drove home. He ran in the front door, threw his arms about his wife and wept. He said, I'm so very, very sorry. I will never do that again. I told you about the big blow up my wife and I had over the knives. You know something? Next month, we'll be married 16 years. We have not had a disagreement from that day till this one. Why would I? Why would I disrupt the spirit between us over the need to be right or the need to be in charge? Why would I do that? I wouldn't. I love her more than my own life. Why would I hurt her? Of course I wouldn't. You know why? Because I made a commitment to her before God. And I was told by the priest who married us that we were one flesh and one bone. I've jokingly said to her, you know, 16 years ago, you ended up with an enlarged prostate. I said, but now I'm having hot flashes. Why would I disrupt the spirit between us for the need to be right? Who's keeping score? No one's keeping score. I'm so grateful for your patience and your kindness, and uh, I'll tell my story later tonight. But, uh, and I, I really am grateful for your kindness. Would someone like to either ask some questions, or would someone like to make a statement about the beauty of their spiritual awakening? Scott, would you please?
Yeah, I'm Scott, I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Scott. I'd, li- I'd like to ask a question. From, from what I've heard, you all have the same sponsor? Yes. I'd like to know how he sponsors you. What does that look like? Um, I'll tell you what he is. He's a very practical man. He's a very, very spiritual man. And from the very beginning, I had to sense that my life and my sobriety was very, very important to him. Besides that, he's a former Marine, so he's got to be wonderful. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's it. And um, he lives his life the way I want to live my life. He loves his wife the way I want to love my wife. He is a classic example of what a real man is in my book. And what's nice about it is if I sit across the table from him and I look him in the eye, I know if I'm lying to myself. That's why I changed sponsors. Not because Tom was a wonderful sponsor, but we're just so far apart we just don't get to see each other. And I really need to see the man who sponsors me. I need to see him. Not as often as, as I used to, but I do need to spend time with him. I do need to see him. I sponsor some guys from a distance, but the agreement is, is that we will get together. And we do. We do frequently get together, like they'll come to my house or something, do their annual house cleaning or something like that. And um, it's important for me to look in the eyes of my sponsor, to know whether or not I'm telling myself the truth. One thing I've understood, realized is I can't be trusted. I'm Gary, I'm alcoholic. Hi, Gary. Do you ever get over feeling inadequate as a sponsor? You know, as a sponsor? Uh, I'm not responsible for the outcome of the guys I sponsor. I'm responsible to carry the message to them that was carried to me. They're responsible to either grab a hold of it or not. Uh, I'm not in charge of who gets sober. I'm simply in charge of carrying the message. My name is Corky. I'm an alcoholic. Um, My spiritual uh, journey... I thought I had been on a spiritual journey all my life, and I guess I was in a certain way. However, I came in contact with the uh, 12-step programs through the Narcotics Anonymous program. And I went to meetings for 10 years, from 91 until 2001. And it wasn't until 2001 that I went to treatment, for, because over that 10 years I used and didn't use and used, and it only got worse. And I didn't identify as an alcoholic, Um, but I was brought in contact with the backroom group as a result of going to a treatment program out at the ranch, and something happened at that meeting, and I think you know when I say something happened. I was touched in a way that I guess I hadn't let myself be touched before, and there was an attraction that happened at that time that has only increased over time. And I've continued to go both to NA and AA meetings. However, I think it was talked about that there's a, there's a, a path that has to do with God's plan for us. And then there's a cultural understanding that each of us develops because of our experiences. And... I find in Alcoholics Anonymous that though that cultural thing happens, there isn't the confusion 
or the confusion doesn't set in and chaos doesn't follow as a result of it. But there's a clarity that I experience here. And part of my journey, part of what happened to me when I went to treatment was that I realized I started to really see and identify and have to accept my shortcomings and my character defects. And I had always believed I was a person who loved everyone because of the influence of my mother especially, because I saw her embrace people. Yet because of my cultural experience, I had to realize and accept the fact that I was prejudiced and that my prejudice had, um, had stunted my growth intensely, even though I thought it was such an intellectual and, and all-loving individual. Because the person who was my, uh, my counselor at Cumberland Heights was a man that I would have never talked to on the street. He was a short man. He was a white man. Kind of had a crew cut. Talked kind of something like this, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Dick would love to have a crew cut. <laughs> and, 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 and he, he, he saw into my heart, into my soul, when I walked to Cumberland Heights. And I was all arrogant and everything because I had left my former uh, treatment facility, the ranch, in somewhat of a turmoil because of something, a statement that I had made. And he says, oh, I know all about you. And immediately it was, you don't know me. You have no idea who I am. That's the inner thing that was going on. And he, he, he just, he loved me. And he just loved me. He loved me in a way that I didn't know that I could be loved. Because he embraced me for who I was and where I was in that moment. And... Um, as a result of that, I started to discover and accept that I had a disease. And I still didn't identify it as alcoholism. I called it addiction. However, as I've continued to be in recovery, I've realized that uh, I am an alcoholic because I've, my memory has started to come back. And I remember the things that I did in relationship to alcoholism as I was growing up and how much of an influence that had in my life and how I was in college and how my cousin couldn't stand going out with me because I'd get fallen down drunk and how disgusted he was with me, things that I didn't want to remember because I didn't like myself like that. And so I just want to say that my spiritual journey brought me here this weekend. It just happened. Dan was, I was at the back room and Dan comes by and says, hey, look, you know, this is happening, and would you like to be a part of it? And there was no hesitation. I had some money in my pocket. I said, here, here's a deposit. And that's my higher power working in my life. And I guess what I'm, what I'm experiencing is just being another human being with no attachment to what my cultural heritage is or my religious background or or how I talk, or you talk, or how you look, or dress. And that's, it just feels so good. It just feels so good. Thank you, Corey. And I appreciate all of you. Thank, Thank you. you. We'll wrap it up with Will. Hi, my name's Will. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Will. I don't know why I'm up here, but I thought this might be useful. Um, I found that my relationship with God uh, 
is is by a major part how I have relationships with the people around me. When I got here, I didn't have any relationships with anybody around me at all, and uh, I had I didn't have the white light thing that I know a lot of people have had. I had the little things that happened over time where I didn't have any of those things happening. And one of the most amazing examples of that is I work in a expensive department store where it's mostly women and gay men. And uh, for me, that was a recipe for about a 30-second job. When I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, they would have shown me the door because I acted inappropriately about both of those categories most of my life. And there was this little guy that used to walk in, and he's a makeup artist and, you know, and I walked with a cane, and he was a really beautiful young man that was like, you know, maybe my age, like 30 or something like that. And I don't, you know, I don't ask anybody why he walks with a cane, but I always smile and say, hey, how you doing? You know, he was like, hey, you know, and um, this one morning I was down having breakfast at this thing, and he came down, and he, uh, he said, hey, I'm going on, I just came by to say goodbye. I'm like, oh, he goes, I'm going on medical leave. And uh, I just want to come by and say thank you for being so nice. And I'm like, oh, what, what's, what's the, well, I've got cancer. I've got a very serious tumor on my heart, and I don't you know, know if I'm going to come back or not. And when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I didn't have anybody in my life coming up and saying, I think I'm going to die. I don't know if I'm ever coming back. And thank you for coming up and being nice to me. And I got back up to my department, and all the women, I worked in a department of all women. And they said, and every one of them came up and said, hey, such and such has been looking for you. And I'm like, yeah, I know. So it was little things like that, you know. I didn't have relationships with anybody when I got here. And as a result of this deal, things like that, there's so many of them, things like that happen all the time. Yeah. Thanks for letting me Thanks, share. Thanks, Will. You know, Will, you know, Will, when I was uh, shortly out of the treatment center and new in AA, and uh, I, I went up to, uh, they were doing a bone marrow uh, on a woman, beautiful, beautiful woman with red hair and uh, and she was crying, and she said, it's not fair. She said, I'm only 30 years old. It's not fair that I have leukemia. And, uh, and I was there to collect a sample to grow the cells. And, uh, and uh, I'm thinking, you know, it's not fair that I, I'm almost 30. It's not fair that I'm, I have alcoholism. And she said, you know, my, my husband couldn't take it, and he took the children and left. And I'm thinking, my wife couldn't take it. She took the children and left. And then she began to cry. She had her head turned toward me. Where she was looking me in the eye. And she said, I'd do anything if I could be well. It hit me like a bolt of lightning. I could be well. And, you know, I spent the next 30 days with her. Uh, and she passed. And, um, and, you know, I think of her often. The phenomenal gift that this woman in the last 30 days of her life gave me. The key to life. I'll do anything if I can be well. I will do anything if I can stay with you and be one of you. God bless you. Thank you. Oh, great.